Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Welcome back to another episode of Disastrous History. This week we're going to cover a new disaster, one we've kind of discussed before, but not really. This week we'll be going over the campfire in 2018. No, not a campfire, the campfire. Two words. The campfire was, well, it was a wildfire. So before we get too far into this, let's get into the background of what a wildfire is. Obviously, it is a fire in the wild. You don't need a PhD in fire science to understand that. Wildfires are generally defined as an unplanned or unwanted fire in an area that is not developed. There are different types of wildfires, sort of. Basically, all fires are the same, but wildfires can spread and are fueled in primarily four different ways. The first of those types is ground fuel. Ground fuel is the leaves and pine needles and rotting wood that's really pushed into the ground, that old stuff. This old stuff that has sat there on the ground for a while is called the duff. That's just the word for it, it's just called the duff. This is the debris that is decomposing under the freshly fallen leaves and pine needles. That's when you stick your hand too far in and you pull out that wet, soggy, unable to be determined what it actually is grossness. Sometimes that stuff isn't wet, and when it's not, it burns pretty well. This also applies to things like coal seams and peat and tree roots and stuff that's underground as well. These types of fires tend to sit there and smolder for a while without supporting much flaming combustion, so usually no actual flames that you can see. It's more of like a glowing ember that you see at the very end of a, forgive me for this, at the very end of a campfire. After that, we get into surface fuels. This is the leaves, twigs, bark, pine cones, whatever that is sitting on the surface of the ground that hasn't decayed enough to be unrecognizable, and they tend to blow around pretty easily. You know what this fuel is, it's fairly easy to understand. These fuels tend to give the fire a crawling look. The fuel is so close to the ground that it takes a long time for the neighboring piece of fuel to ignite, and it may look like fingers coming out from the main fire front, so it kind of travels like, like a hand almost. It's like it's crawling. These tend to be when the flaming combustion really starts. You'll get some small height flames that burn for a short amount of time relative to the fuel size. This is often where wildfires begin in those loose surface fuels because leaves don't tend to burn that long, twigs don't burn that long, pine needles don't turn to long, burn that long, excuse me, but they do tend to ignite other areas because they're so light in fuel, they're so thin, that they spread fairly easily by convection. The next fuel we have is called ladder fuels. These are the fuels between the surface fuels, so that stuff that's laying on the ground, and the canopy, so the canopy of the forest. This is stuff like short trees, bushes, low-hanging branches, vines, flowers, pretty much anything that aren't at, quite at tree canopy height, but aren't the loose surface fuels on the floor of the forest. These absolutely can support flaming combustion and are the next step in moving from a small surface fire to what becomes a roaring wildfire. This is the stuff that helps it to spread where you see those crazy pictures on TV of the fire going 30, 40 feet in the air above the canopy. That's what these ladder fuels are. That's how they get up that high. And then the last type of fuel we have is aerial fuels. Aerial fuels are the tree canopies. 
These are the branches and leaves and all that that are up high in the tree. The fire reaches the canopy and you not only have flaming combustion, but you have a significant vector for continued fire spread. That is because once the canopy is going, it is often in direct contact with the trees around it. So it allows for easier spread between trees, easier spread to buildings, and then you get easier wind spread because you have embers going up into the air over the tops of the canopies and that's how you get those fires that are downwind from the actual main fire itself. So those are aerial fuels. And those are the four main types of fuels. Basically all wildfires have some combination of those four fuels. But how do we get from those things, which are basically everywhere, to these massive multi-hundred square acre wildfires? Because I mean, you can go out, I mean, you can go out anywhere in the Midwest and see those things, and we don't have these giant fires here in the Midwest. You can see the same thing in the South. There's a ton of vines and stuff that could be good ladder fuels in the South, but we don't have those types of wildfires in the Midwest and the South and the Northeast and places like that. You also don't get it in rainforests and the desert and stuff like that. I mean, the desert is obvious because sand doesn't super burn. But, I mean, you get the picture. You don't get it in, like, places like England or Norway or stuff like that. So why is it so common in California and Australia and Africa? So to fully understand that, we need to understand how a fire starts. And a fire starts with the fire tetrahedron. Many of you will know it as the fire triangle. It is no longer the fire triangle. It is the fire tetrahedron. The four sides of the fire tetrahedron are fuel, oxygen, an ignition source, and the chemical reaction that sustains flaming combustion. You need all four to have a fire. If you remove one of those four things, you will not have a fire. And then from there you get the fuel that is ignited, it goes to the next fuel, goes to the next fuel, goes to the next fuel, and then you have a raging inferno. So why, especially in North America, are fires generally confined to the western half of North America? That's the Rocky Mountains, Sierra Nevada Mountains, other places around the world, including the western half of Canada, Australia, Africa, Vietnam, South America, some places in South America at least, etc. They can happen anywhere, but these are the most common areas. So, just to start with Vietnam, because it's one of those weird cases that doesn't really get talked about, the reason there are a ton of wildfires in the grasslands in Vietnam is because of U.S. military bombing campaigns during the Vietnam War. They deforested major parts of Vietnam and ended up creating a whole different disaster in their wake. There weren't that many wildfires in Vietnam before the Vietnam War. So, just in case you weren't already convinced that the Vietnam War was a complete mistake, we created wildfires in a place that there weren't wildfires before. Fun fact. So, then, why those other areas besides Vietnam? Because, again, the United States can be blamed for that. Well, those areas often have frequent long dry spells that allow for the fuel load to dry out enough to lead to conditions for a wildfire. And this is where we talk about climate change. The climate is changing. If you disagree with that, well, sucks. That is the fact of what is happening. The climate is getting warmer. As the temperature warms up, we get increasingly unstable weather patterns. For some parts of the world, this means significantly more rain, stronger storms, harsher winters, etc. For others, such as the western half of North America and basically all of Australia, this means significantly hotter and drier spring, falls, summers, etc. 
Now, one of the things that is well known to stop fire is water. Duh. Everyone knows that. If you're having hotter, drier summer, spring, fall, you don't have much water left to A, fight that fire, and B, prevent those fires from happening in the first place. In all plants, there is water content. When things are raining and the temperature is relatively low, that water stays in the trees and grass and leaves and all that and keeps the wildfire risk low. But what happens is, as the ambient air temperature increases, the amount of water that can be held in the air exponentially increases. When this happens, more and more water is drawn out of plants, the ground, and rivers, and lakes. The difference between how much water the air is holding and how much it can hold is called vapor pressure deficit. And heat increases that deficit, rapidly drying out everything. This leads to super dry fuels and the ability for wildfires to spread rapidly. Climate change has led to hotter and drier periods to hold over large swaths of the United States, Canada, and Australia, and this has led to bigger, hotter, and more unwieldy wildfires. Literally last year, an area roughly the size of South Dakota was burned by massive wildfires all over Australia. These were largely driven by a drought brought on by climate change. They weren't caused by climate change, but the size and intensity and the fuel load absolutely were. So far we've covered types of wildfires, the fuel, and how and why they are so intense, but now I want to cover some frequent terms and how they spread. So everyone knows that fire spreads up and out in a basic sense. If you set a fire on the center of a cushion on a couch in a house, the heat, smoke, and fire will travel straight up until it hits the roof, then spreads outward, right? You'll have a little bit of horizontal spread, but it will take a while because the heat flux to the surrounding area of the couch isn't very high. Heat flux is basically the heat that's being sent to the fuel surrounding the fire. But what happens if you set the same fire on the couch, but then plug in a fan and blow it directly on the fire? It begins to not only travel upward, but horizontally along the couch as well in the direction of the wind. You'll eventually push that fire and heat towards the rear of the couch, where it will then travel up the back cushion of the couch and start to spread more and more aggressively outward. A similar thing happens in wildfires. You get a small fire in some underbrush, maybe a bush or a pile of leaves from, say, somebody throwing a cigarette out the window. It's a calm night with almost no wind, and the fire burns up the spot it's in, maybe grows a bit outward, but is a fairly simple extinguishment for the local fire department. Unfortunately, especially in California, that is not usually what happens. California especially suffers from hot, dry winds that come down out of the mountains and take that simple brush fire earlier and shove it aggressively across whatever fuel is available. These winds are famously known as the Santa Ana winds. But that's kind of misleading because the Santa Ana winds only occur in Southern California. This same type of wind occurs in Northern California, but they're known as the Diablo winds. In some of the localities, they're also known as the Jarbo winds. Kind of really depends on where you're at and who you're talking to. These winds are always hot and dry and very, very fast. Basically, wind comes down from a high pressure area sitting over the Sierra Nevada mountains. As it hits the bottom of the mountain, the wind increases in temperature and dries out as it travels over the desert. This also speeds up the wind. Then the winds reach the Diablo mountain range. As they are shoved over, around, and between the mountains, the speed of the wind increases even more due to the difference in pressures. Basically, it's like going through a tunnel. It squeezes the wind together and makes it go faster. This puts the speed of these winds up to about 80 miles per hour at the highest gusts. 
these winds lead to either drying out more fuel, pushing the fire into new unburned fuels, or taking actively burning lit fuel embers and shoving them out to create smaller spot fires. This is exactly like that couch cushion from earlier, just in the wild. Now I want you to go back to that couch from earlier and where we started the fire. Dead center of the cushion, away from all side walls. Let's move that hypothetical fire on the couch to the back corner and start it there. This gives us way more roots of fire spread by introducing at least two more planes of fuel. The arm of the couch and the back cushion of the couch as well as the bottom of the cushion from earlier. This exponentially increases the heat flux pushing to areas on the couch and allowing for significantly faster fire spread throughout the room compartment. Let's do the same in a wildland situation. Our original fire was on a flat part of land. Now let's put the same fire on a slope on the side of a valley. Now you've got an angle to your burning fuel and more fuels are closer to the heat being released allowing for more and more fuels to become involved. Then take the same scenario, add the Diablo winds to it, push it even further up that valley involving more and more fuel until it's a raging inferno. There was at least one term in that explanation that I'd like to explain real quick. Obviously wildfires have different terminology than building fires. How a wildfire spreads is usually in one direction, whatever way the wind is pushing it. Sometimes it'll spread on either side and the back, but it's usually not super extensive that direction. The side of the fire with the fastest rate of spread is called the head of the fire. The back side of the fire is called the rear, and the two sides are called the flank. Sometimes, fires will start up ahead of the head, or disconnected from the flank, or even behind the rear. These are called spot fires. And just to throw in an extra wrinkle of fun, the head can become the rear, and the rear can become the head, or the flank can become the head, or whatever combination you choose from just a simple change of the wind. Because whatever flame front is moving fastest is the one that is the head. That brings us to our disaster, the campfire. The area primarily impacted by the campfire was Butte County, California, and it really hit the town of Paradise, California. But before I get too far into the actual story of the fire, I want to lay a little background on this area of California and what conditions were like leading up to the outbreak of the fire. Obviously, California is no stranger to droughts, especially lately. The campfire started on November 8, 2018. And we're going to talk about the years leading up to it, and the year leading up to it, really. What normally happens in this area of California is they have a moderately wet spring, a dry summer, and then rains in October and November that help to cool everything off and make the vegetation wet again. With climate change heating up the entire area, though, these rains are coming later and later in the year, or just not coming at all. In 2016 and 2017, the entire state of California had suffered through some terrible droughts, this had killed an insane number of trees throughout California, which, as we discussed, is a major fuel load for prospective wildfires. The average rainfall for the entire year in Paradise is about 54 inches or so. They don't get much snow, rarely falling above a high of 54 degrees even in the wintertime, so most of their precipitation is rainfall year-round. In 2018, though, they did not get anywhere near that rainfall amount. The year started out with some decent rainfall, but that was a bit of a curse more than anything, because those rains came in short bursts, which is fine, but it only gives you so much water, and those short bursts of rainfall are really good at providing water and good growing conditions for only one thing, grass. The trees need more water to restore themselves, and the dead trees on the ground, well they're going to need a lot of water to get them down to a manageable fire risk. 
So the grass in the hills and valleys around Paradise grew really, really well in the spring, and not much else did. And no one's mowing that grass, because why the hell would they? So the grass got long and overgrown. And so they got some decent rainfall throughout January and February and March and April, enough to get the grass nice and long, but not quite enough to really get the rest of the plants around the area saturated with the water necessary to help prevent fires. And then, well, the rest of the year happened. From May 1st, 2018 to November 8th, 2018, Paradise, California, and the areas surrounding it received a grand total of basically nine-tenths of an inch of rain. Basically, six months with nine-tenths of an inch of rain. And three-quarters of an inch of rain, so almost all of that, fell in May. The rest fell in October. So June, July, August, and September received zero rainfall at all. The usual amount of rainfall in Paradise over those six months seven inches. But it wasn't just that there was no rain. There was no rain, and it was hot. The average temperature in July is about 91 degrees. The average high temperature in July of 2018 was 102 degrees Fahrenheit. The same was true for June, and August, and September, and October. All those months, the average high ranged a full seven degrees or more above the normal temperature for that year. And this wasn't the high humidity heat, this was low humidity. That means there was significantly higher vapor pressure deficit in the air, meaning all that grass that grew over the early months of 2018 had all the water sucked out of it. Any trees that had water in them were dried out. Any dead or dying trees or plants on the ground were just completely dry. It was a full-on disaster waiting to happen. And basically all of it caused by climate change. For sure, there have been fires in the area of Paradise before, but nothing to this extent. Now, Paradise itself is located in north-central Butte County, California, at a beautiful spot in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada Mountains, nestled among some wonderful valleys. It sits about 30 miles north of Lake Oroville, and about 90 miles due north from Sacramento. It is a town of about 27,000 or so people. It isn't a very big town, and not much really goes on there. There's a high school and grade schools, and the high school's mascot is the Bobcat. It really is the quintessential American small town. Founded first as a mining town and then converted into a timber town, legend has it that a man named William Leonard and his crew were delivering a load of lumber to the town of a summer day. They plopped down in the shade, and William allegedly said to his crew, Boys, this is paradise. And that's how the town got its name. The first rumblings that something was wrong happened not on that fateful Thursday in November, but two days beforehand. You see, two days before the fire, so November 6th, PG&E had said they may shut off power because of increased fire risk. They did not do that. No, the first warning of we screwed up was sent to a single person, Mrs. Betsy Ann Cowley of Pulga, California. Located about seven miles due east to Paradise, I say due east because the only way to get from Pulga to Paradise is a full 26-mile jaunt around a ridge that doesn't have a road going over it. Uh, anyway... On November 7, 2018, Mrs. Cowley received an email from her utility company, PG&E. If you live in California, chances are you know Pacific Gas and Electric always shortened to PG&E. They cover a huge chunk of California providing electric and gas services. Some say they're not very good at it. Basically, they told her, hey, we need to access your property over there by Polga because one of our power lines is throwing sparks. 
super fantastic when you're at an increased fire risk. Mrs. Callie was on vacation, but told them it was fine to go check on it, you know, knowing PG&E's track record with their equipment causing wildfires throughout California. Allegedly right around 1,500 fires between 2014 and 2017, but who is keeping track? She didn't get back from vacation until Monday, November 12th. When she returned, she found her house burnt to the ground. Early in the morning, Captain Matt McKenzie of the Jarbo Gap Fire Station had gotten up to make breakfast for his crew. It was early, and it was already windy. He was standing at the stove when he heard an odd sound against the walls and windows of the station. Like, almost like a rhythmic pinging sound. Almost sounded like raindrops. Thinking they were finally getting the rain they so desperately needed in order to keep the surrounding area from going up like a tinderbox, Captain McKenzie went to walk outside. He opened the door just a bit before the winds ripped it out of his hands and slammed it into the side of the station. That's when he realized that sound wasn't rain hitting the side of the station. It was thousands upon thousands of dead pine needles. It's likely in this moment that Captain McKenzie realized that it was not going to be a good day. Closing the door behind him, because being pelted by pine needles does not sound pleasant, he went back to making breakfast. But if you've been an emergency responder, you know what is going to happen next, because before he could finish cooking, the tones dropped for a fire in the area. It was 6.29 a.m., Thursday, November 8, 2018. The first indications of an issue, besides the email the day before and PG&E themselves saying they needed to shut off power and then not doing it two days before, was at 6.15 a.m., the PG&E Control Center documented an interruption in power on the transmission line that went through the Feather River Canyon right by Polga. Give or take five minutes later, a PG&E employee driving to work witnessed a bright light up on top of a nearby ridgeline. He originally believed it to be the sun. It most definitely was not the sun. Continuing to drive along, he realized it was in fact a fire underneath one of the transmission towers. He then used his radio to contact his co-workers, who then called 911 because there is no cell service in that area. A photograph taken at 6.30 a.m. showed the fire having spread to be a decent size covering almost the entire crest of the hill directly underneath tower 27-222. That numbering system means it is 27 miles away from the starting powerhouse and is the 222nd power structure in that line. It had only been about 15 minutes since the first recorded interruption of the PG&E system, and the fire was already a significant size. At 6.45 a.m., Captain McKenzie was finally in position to observe and make decisions on how to go about attacking this fire. He quickly deduced from the wind speed, about 30 mile an hour, in the direction blowing east to west, there was no feasible way to fight the fire. There was a road up there, Camp Creek Road, which is where Campfire gets its name, the last time he tried to drive an engine up that way took an hour, and he had to have someone watch every tire to make sure that a rock slide didn't send the truck tumbling down the valley slope. And if the wind changed, his whole crew would be dead. He radioed back to tell command that they needed to evacuate Polga and set up a defensive line at Concow Road on the west side of the ridge that was currently burning. There would be no stopping the fire before it traversed that entire area, which was about a mile. While on the radio reporting what he was witnessing, Captain McKenzie made a chilling statement, quote, This has the potential of a major incident. He had no idea how correct he would be. It would only take a little over one hour for the campfire to spread from this small area below tower number 27-222 until it reached Paradise, California, seven miles away. 
At 7.40 a.m., the first buildings were beginning to burn in Concow, California, which is about two miles southwest of where the campfire started. By that time, evacuation orders were coming in, but it was too late. Homes in Concow were already burning. Susan and Gilbert Orr were doing their best to put out spot fires in their yard with rakes and hoses, but it was no use. They fled by car, hoping to make it out alive. In fact, there had been a ton of calls to 911 about fires near Concow, but the official line was that it was not near Concow. It was north of there, and that it was not threatening the area. For almost an hour, all 911 callers from Concow and Paradise were told that the fire was not near them, and there was no reason for alarm or evacuation. That was most definitely not the case. The oars would make it out of Concow alive, but some wouldn't be so lucky. About 8.07 a.m., a tree would fall and block Hoffman Road, essentially the only escape route out of Concow. The fire crew and residents trapped behind the tree fled into a nearby park. Some of the residents jumped into a creek to try and escape the flames. Firefighters desperately deployed their heat shields, but it was barely any use. At least 8 of the 20 residents died right there trying desperately to hide from the inferno. Then the fire came to paradise. It had traveled there at speeds at around 800 yards a minute. That is fast. The town had been told during a fire 10 years prior, the Humboldt Fire, that they needed to come up with a way for the entire town to be evacuated quickly and effectively since during that previous fire, three of the roads had been covered by fire and it created a gridlock exposing the entirety of Paradise to danger. That's not what they did. Instead, they split it up into evacuation zones that could be emptied one at a time which is fine if the fire didn't just spread seven miles in basically an hour and the town is only about four miles across. The math there isn't great. And on top of that, Butte County, where Paradise sits, has a private warming system for fires, which means you have to go and sign up for it. 70% of Paradise had not signed up for the warning system. And this is going to go exactly how you think it is. The first evacuation order was given for the east side of town. The eastern side of town was literally already on fire at this point. The next evacuation order wouldn't come until almost 9 a.m. By then, it was too late. Paradise was lost. The combination of 911 telling residents not to evacuate, officials taking too long to actually issue the orders, the private system that not everyone had signed up for, and the damage was already done. This was going to end badly. The fire was ripping through Paradise. Evacuation orders were given, but it didn't matter. The fire was already there. The Feather River Hospital received orders for an immediate evacuation. They shoved patients into ambulances, cop cars, fire engine, literally anything with wheels that could move. The campus was already igniting. Surgical nurse Nicole Jolly was helping get the patients out and made one last round through the hospital to make sure all were evacuated. Then she got in her car to flee. She would not make it very far. As she was driving down Pearson Road, her steering wheel began to melt in her hands. She called her husband to tell him she was going to die. He told her, no, you run. So she did. She got out of her car and ran as the tires burst into flames. She was literally running down the street. Both sides are nothing but walls of flames. The asphalt is so hot it's melting her shoes. Her scrubs are catching on fire as she's sprinting. She had to run with her eyes closed because embers kept pelting her eyes. Finally, she saw a fire truck. The sides of the fire truck were melting. Two firefighters put her pants out and yanked her into the engine. 
They called for an air water drop. They were told it was impossible. Then they were told something in, unthinkable to Nicole at the moment. They were told to go back to the hospital, which, again, has to be the last thing she wanted to hear. But a bulldozer showed up and helped them smash their way back to the hospital where they found some patients who had also been turned back around. There they huddled on the helipad and in the parking lot, the only firebreak around. Essentially, everyone around there would survive the fire. But by now, this was no longer a wildfire. The fire was moving so fast through the city, it wasn't even spreading via vegetation. It was spreading house to house. This had moved from wildfire to firestorm. The only real adequate comparison to what's happened in Paradise is the firebombing of Dresden. Winds were reaching 75 miles per hour and were ripping flames from house to house with no end in sight. The fire had grown so large it was creating its own wind. I want to take a quick moment to explain what a firestorm is. A firestorm is basically a storm that is created by fire. Thousands of smaller fires combine into one single giant plume, which then pushes the air that's at the ground between all of those fires up into the air with such force that it sucks in air from all around the burning fires, creating its own wind, which then turns into basically a fire tornado. So, essentially what is happening in Paradise is a giant fire tornado is spreading fire from house to house to house throughout this entire town. At the same time, one of Nicole's co-workers, Alan Pierce, was in his truck with two of their colleagues. After they had helped evacuate the patients, they had jumped in the truck to try and flee, but got stuck amid exploding cars all around them burning with walls of flame on either side of the road. They had the air conditioning running full blast, but it wasn't helping. Trying to keep everybody calm, Alan put on music. The first song that came on, Celine Dion's song, Ashes. And thankfully he skipped that because that's not what you want to hear when you're surrounded by a giant firestorm at this point, literally surrounded by a fire tornado. Do not want to listen to a song called Ashes. And then the next song that came on was Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes. And they sang along with it. And then they got stuck. And then a fire truck pulled up next to it. And those two colleagues jumped out and got in the cab of the fire truck for safety. But he stayed in the truck, hoping that the cars that were stuck in front of him would somehow get out of the way. And he really didn't want to abandon his truck, leaving somebody else stuck. So, sitting in his own car, waiting to burn to death, he recorded a video for his family and friends and then stuck it as far in his center console as he could hoping it would survive the flames if he didn't. So, in those final moments he expected, he turned on Take On Me by AHA and sang along with it, trying to avoid thinking about the burning inferno outside of his truck. But miraculously, through the fire and the smoke, a bulldozer appeared and shoved cars out of his way, and he was able to get his truck into gear and make it to safety. 86 total souls would not make it out of the campfire with their lives. Mostly elderly and unable to escape on their own, many were found dead in their beds, favorite chairs, or hiding in the bathtub. One couple was found holding hands next to each other in their recliners. Dispatchers did everything they could to calm these people down. Many listened to those on the other end of the phone in their final moments, choking, gagging, and screaming. They did everything they could to calm them down and tell them it would be alright, knowing full well that it may not be all right. 
There were thousands upon thousands of acts of pure heroism. One firefighter recalls driving by a burning ambulance on the side of the road, only to see the paramedic who was driving that ambulance standing on the roof of a nearby home, hose in hand, spraying any embers that got close, while his partner helped the patients into the home for hopeful safety. Citizens with bulldozers, firefighters and engines, just random people used whatever they could to plow disabled vehicles off the road to allow for trapped people to escape. Thousands risked their lives to save those around them. In one intersection, several fire engines formed a circle around about a hundred people and their pets and sprayed their water cannons at the fire, hoping to save them from the firestorm swirling all around them. One set of firefighters were trying to do some work along nearby Rattlesnake Flats Road. Their plan was to create a fire break on one side of the road. As they got there, though, the fire had a different plan. The wind flipped around and blew directly at them, overcoming them as fast as they could flee. Their only route of escape was through a barbed wire fence. One of the firefighters lifted up the barbed wire fence to help his comrades escape and was burned as he was attempted to crawl into the fence. All over the city of Paradise are the same stories with different street names and different people names. Everything everywhere was on fire. The only way out was to run at more fire, unfortunately. Hope you make it out alive. The smoke was so thick it looked like nighttime, and it's about 10 a.m. The only light were flames and embers. There was almost no hope. It would take firefighters 15 days to fully extinguish the campfire and bring it under control. In total, it burned about 150,000 acres, or 239 square miles. For comparison, San Francisco is about 46 square miles. It's estimated about 95% of Paradise was burned to the ground. The fire destroyed almost 19,000 structures. So we've already discussed the origin of this fire below tower number 27, 222 near Pulga. But what was the cause? Well, as with a lot of wildfires in California, it is PG&E's fault. The fire was caused by a hook that was supposed to hold up the power line failing, which allowed the power line to make contact with the steel tower. This caused repeated electrical arcing between the line and the tower itself, which showered sparks and molten metal down onto the completely dry vegetation below. The left side of the tower had been the one that failed. The right side of the same tower had the same wear through the metal, where the power line had rubbed against the bottom of the hook during high wind situations. Both hooks had been replaced at some point in the past, indicating that PG&E knew that the wear was an issue during high wind situations, and yet the only thing they did to prevent it was go look at the tower the day before when it was throwing sparks. They didn't shut off the power. They didn't fix the likely blatantly obvious wear in the hook. They just let it go. They didn't even have records of when they were replaced. It was estimated that the wear on the one that broke would have been visible for at least 50 years. So someone should have seen it, but apparently no one did. Or more likely, they had divided work up in a way that meant that the tower team took responsibility for only the tower and the hooks were clearly part of the line, so they didn't need to worry about it, and the power line division only looked at the lines and the hooks were clearly part of the tower, so they shouldn't have to deal with it. So basically, the hooks were a dead area of maintenance. They didn't have anyone there to take that really took responsibility for it. So it just was, oh, the next guy will fix it. Oh, the next guy will fix it. For 50 years, until a fire finally breaks out that kills 86 people and burns down basically the entirety of a town. In fact, the tower in question that failed had not been properly inspected since at least 2001. 17 years of no in-depth inspections in a place that is subjected to high winds on a regular basis. 
Investigations of other towers on similar ridges produce the same results with the same wear on the same hooks. At the end, the story is PG&E took no measures to prevent this fire from happening and are entirely to blame for the deaths that occurred in Paradise and the surrounding areas. Oh yeah, and just for good measure, there was actually a Camp B fire started around the same time, about three miles west of the start of the campfire. It also started from a PG&E line, but it was because a dying ponderosa pine tree fell on the power line. In the aftermath of the fire, Paradise had to be completely rebuilt. The pre-fire population of Paradise was about 27,000 people. Now, it is between 2,000 and 4,500. There was some hope brought back to the people of Paradise, of the Friday Night Lights variety. You remember that Paradise High School I mentioned earlier, the Bobcats? Well, the high school survived the fire with almost no damage, and the Paradise football team would go on to play the 2019-2020 season in honor of those that lost their lives in the deadly fire. The Bobcats would go undefeated in the regular season by a combined score of 469-73. to The whole town of Paradise would show up to the games, giving hope to those who remained. Players would travel from as far as 90 minutes away. Literally, only three players on the team actually lived in Paradise still. They would make it all the way to the title game before losing in heartbreaking fashion. But they gave the citizens of Paradise hope that not all was lost. And that's all you can ask for after all this heartbreak. The total estimated cost of the fire was $16.65 billion, making it the costliest disaster in 2018. In the aftermath of the fire, PG&E would have the pants suit off them, almost literally. In January of 2019, PG&E filed for bankruptcy, citing expected wildfire liabilities of $30 billion. And then on June 16, 2020, PG&E pleaded guilty to 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter and were required to pay a $13.5 million fine. PG&E reached a $13.5 billion settlement with the victims of the wildfire, but not much of it has been paid out to date. The campfire was the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California history and still retains that record to this day. Unfortunately, those records are not likely to stay because as wildfires get worse and worse, as climate change gets worse and worse, these fires will continue to happen and cities that are bigger with more people and less warning will burn to the ground. The next place could be a place like San Francisco or Sacramento or Fresno or any other place in California or Oregon or Washington British Columbia, all over the western half of the United States. These fires are getting bigger. They're getting hotter. There are more firestorms being created. There never were firestorms before the last several years. They were slow-growing, single-front fires that went along with the wind. The wind rarely changed in wildfires before now. Now, the wind changes regularly. We regularly see fire tornadoes. We should not be seeing fire tornadoes at the rate we are. We have to make changes to fight climate change. We absolutely have to, or the entirety of the West Coast will continue to burn over and over and over again. And it starts with utility companies. Those utility lines that failed during the campfire were over 100 years old, and they weren't inspected basically at all. We need these billion-dollar companies to start making investments in making their stuff safer, updating it, upgrading it, 
making it so that stuff like this doesn't happen because it's going to continue. And if we don't change how we manage fires, then it's just going to get worse and worse. More people are going to die. More buildings are going to burn down. More people are going to lose everything they own because these companies refuse to take a stand and make a change that might hurt their profits to help fight this from happening. PG&E should have done this a long time ago, and now they're bankrupt because of it. They owe $13.5 billion because they just refused to make changes to prevent this from happening. The campfire was the first and the deadliest, but it will not be the last. There will be more deadly fires. There will be worse fires. There will be bigger fires. It will happen. It could happen this year if we do not make changes and quickly. And I wasn't kidding earlier. Cal Fire has blamed PG&E for over 1,500 wildfires in the last, well, in the years from 2014 to 2017. That's not including from 2017 to now. That number is way higher. And they have killed more people because they have not properly maintained their equipment or just flat out ignored it and let the fires continue to happen. These companies need to reach into their wallet, pull out some money, and make this stuff safer so that we can make the world safer, so that people can live and not live in fear of having to run from a giant wall of fire, for to be not afraid of having to wonder if a fire tornado is going to hit their house. Because if there's one thing that should not be combined, it's fires and tornadoes, because that's two terrible things that just should never be combined. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Disastrous History. History is spelled H-S-T-R-Y, so Disastrous History without the vowels. You can also follow me on Instagram, Disastrous History spelled correctly. You can follow me on TikTok, Disastrous History spelled correctly, and at DisastrousHistory.com. If you want to let me know how I'm doing, you can send me an email at DisastrousHistory at gmail.com. As always, stay safe, and remember to check your smoke detector batteries.